welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, college for Lutherans, by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, July 5th, we are studying Psalm 14. In today's text, the Lord teaches us the folly of unbelief, yet he also promises refuge to those who find their righteousness in him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Tim Eden. Pastor Eden serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. Pastor Eden, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. It's great to be with you as always. As we get started today, Pastor Eden, let's talk a little bit about the Psalms in general. It's a unique form of literature within the Scriptures, certainly quite different than the Book of Revelation, which we had been reading previously here on Sharper Iron. So talk to us a little bit about about the Psalms. What do we need to know to approach them helpfully as Christians? Uh, the biggest thing that stands out to me, and, and I'm not the first to think of this or know this by any means, but uh, the uniqueness of the Psalms, uh, obviously part of uh, God's written word, and so God's word to us, um, you know, as we uh, affirm, cling to, hold to um, the inerrancy of all of God's word for us, uh, from him, for us to hear, to ponder, to receive, um, to learn, you know, about him, about ourselves. Um, so, so much of, of that dynamic, which is true of all of scripture. Um, and yet along with that, the Psalms is also as, as prayers, um, there's also this dynamic of the Psalms as our words to God. Um, uh, today, as we look specifically the words of David, um, uh, but then also as it's been included in scripture, it's been used throughout time, um, as, as the saints, um, those who have gone before us, um, uh, their, their words and prayers to God as well. So there's a unique dynamic there that maybe we find a few other places in scripture, uh, um, at times, but, um, but most prominently in, in the, in the Psalms. Yeah, I've always found that a helpful thing about the book of Psalms, because sometimes it, it can be a pretty intimidating book. There's 150 Psalms. There's a great variety within those 150 Psalms. But to know that that they are not only God's word to me, but also then my words back to God, I found is just a very helpful thing when it comes to learning how to pray. I mean, Jesus teaches how to pray, the disciples asked, and he gave them the Lord's Prayer, so, I mean, when mm-hmm. people ask me, Pastor, how, how should I pray? Well, here's, here's the Lord's Prayer, and then here's 150 more prayers for you, and, and then take those, <laughs> and then we'll talk. <laughs> and of course, for me too, I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing. That's one of the things I really appreciate about the Psalms, and especially with like what we've got today, they don't always sound as much like prayers, at least as the way that we think about prayers. And so I think it, it, when, mm-hmm. the more we expose ourselves to the book of Psalms, the richer our prayers will be for it, not only in the way that we use the very words that they give us, but also in the way then that they shape the words that we would say too. Absolutely, well said. Um, and so there is this um, uh, interestingness then to utilizing the Psalms, again, not just in in sort of study or, or thoughtful or academic, you know, sense, 
um, but in that actual sort of Christian living, um, you know, the, the prayer part in particular. And, and I think then along with that, as we think about or especially look at different psalms, um, some of these psalms can be really helpful in us expressing, you know, what we're thinking, what we're feeling to God. Um, oftentimes, psalms can then bring comfort, you know, as we're wrestling with this. Um, the psalmist also acknowledges that. Um, and yet there's also those psalms where it's like, oh, man, um, what do I do with this? How, how is this a, a, a prayer of a saint who has gone before me? And, and it can be really challenging at times then uh, for us to to consider the the words of the psalms. Yeah, yeah. And I think in those challenging times of the, also, when you see those words, there are oftentimes where you've thought those same things, and maybe you didn't think they were terribly pious thoughts, and yet to see them in the Psalter as a part of God's Word to you, and also then words that you can speak back to God, I think is a very comforting thing, and it reminds us of that that fellowship, the mm-hmm. communion that we have within the body of Christ, both the saints who came before Him and the saints who've come after, that, that we're not alone in this. Uh, our prayers that we speak today are prayers that have been uttered many centuries before us, and will continue to be uttered until the Lord returns again in glory. So I, I find that comforting about the book of Psalms as well. Now, we've, we've got Psalm 14 today, which the, the superscription to this one simply says, to the choir master of David. Generally speaking, when I read of David, I, I think this is probably a psalm that was written by David. And so we've, we've got that today. Is there any historical background that you're aware of beyond what's written in that superscription? Not not that I'm aware of, um, not to the extent that I, I studied, um, and I would make the same assumption that uh, this is a psalm written uh, by David uh, yeah. for our use. So let's go ahead then and turn to the words of this psalm. This is Psalm 14 that we have this morning. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people, as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge." Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. That's our text for today. That is Psalm 14. So, Pastor Eden, before we look at the individual verses and things that are said by the psalm, maybe give us a, an overview. How, do you, how would you structure this psalm? What's being said as a whole within Psalm 14? Um, one of the interesting things uh, about this psalm, as you noted, you know, some of them don't necessarily sound like prayers as much. Um, uh, this one doesn't have um, as much of that same, that language of, uh, I'd actually have to double check, even if it refer- references me ever, you know, where a lot of the psalms do speak personally. Um, and so this one has more of a, a teaching feel um, or although I don't get into this at length um, in my study so far, uh, very much sort of a wisdom literature feel to it. Um, some of that is is triggered for us by the initial um, uh, words in the first verse. We'll get to that in a second, like you said. Um, but but 
to look at that in an overarching sense is is there is some of this um, teaching or, or descriptive uh, uh, nature to this psalm. Uh, as I look at it as a whole, um, uh, I, I think verses 1 through 3 um, form a section to some extent, and, and partially because of the repetition of a phrase there. Um, uh, verses 4 through 6, then, from my looking, uh, kind of have another section to them with, with some contrast uh, of uh, groups of people. Um, and then verse 7 is really, uh, in a lot of ways, a, a wonderful, comforting, you know, gospel conclusion, as many of the Psalms do. Not all, but many um, do for us to, to consider. That would be my initial yeah. overview looking at it. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. And, you know, uh, just to when it comes to the Psalms, there's a variety of opinions sometimes as to how exactly to structure them. But I think, at least for our purposes mm-hmm. today, certainly, to take one to three makes good sense. And as you pointed out, there is a, a bit of a structural marker there with that thought that there's none who does good seems to tie that together. Verses four through six do seem to go together with the way that it, it speaks about, on the one hand, the evildoers, and yet the Lord who is going to take care of his people. And then verse 7, again, does seem to stand by itself at the end, where you actually do get more of a prayer there and a promise for hope in the Lord. So I, I think that's a, a fairly easy, and, and it makes sense as a structuring for this psalm. I also appreciate the connection that, that you say we we have a sense of, of wisdom literature here, or at least there's going to be some themes from wisdom literature that I think are helpful and, and the reason for that is, mm-hmm. I don't think wisdom itself gets mentioned, but folly does. So we have here in the first verse, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Talk to us about the fool. Uh, the fool, um, uh, an interesting, you know, uh, uh, English word that we use, um, uh, and certainly lots of nuances to that. Um, uh, uh the, apparently, and I, I can't go in depth on this, there are a number of, uh, at least a few um, Hebrew words that often get translated as fool, uh, maybe with some different nuances of their own. Um, this one certainly uh, seems to be a strong uh, a reference to fool or foolishness. Um, and so as we enter into, I mean, almost abruptly, it seems like, I mean, maybe the start of any psalm is abrupt, but uh, into this you know, um, fool and foolishness, uh, I, I can't help but think of um, uh, Jesus' own words um, uh, of in, the, in the parable of the rich man, um, and, and where someone is called a, a fool by, by God himself, in, in the parable at least. <clears throat> so the, that would be the one from, what, Luke chapter 12, with the, the man who tears down his barns and builds bigger ones? Talk, talk a little bit about what that says about the fool and how it relates to, to what Psalm 14 says about a fool. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny to jump away from the psalm so quickly, but but again, okay. I think, at least for me and, and for our, our hearers, this may be a, um, a fairly memorable um, parable of Jesus. Um, you're exactly right. Um, this is the, the parable of the, the rich man. His, his land has produced plentifully. He has so much uh, uh, that his crops, uh, that he's not sure what to do with them. Uh, and so he, de- he he sort of contemplates to himself some and then decides, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to tear down the barns that I have, build larger ones so that I can store all of these things. And then I'll be able to just 
relax back and, and um, uh, you know, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Um, like you said, this is all in Luke 12, um, starting at verse 13 and following. Um, but then in verse 20, um, after this uh, rich man has reached this point of, oh, I can sit back and relax, I've got everything I need for a while. Um, uh, verse 20 of, of Luke 12, but God said to him, fool, uh, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Um, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So not only the, the word fool, and again, Hebrew, Greek, you know, coming from a different language, but still that English translation of the word. Uh, I think the idea behind what Jesus is putting forward in the parable uh, is so similar, uh, if not identical to the beginning of this psalm, because uh, the rich man in that parable acts as if there is no God. Um, if there is no one beyond him, uh, himself, what he has, uh, and really his own sort of temporal life, um, there, there's no, at least in the parable, there, there's nothing uh, portrayed for us of any sense of, you know, some might call it a higher being, um, uh, uh, something beyond this life, all of those kinds of languages that we hear, especially in our day. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I, I do think that connecting these two things is helpful because on the, on the one hand, when you look at what the rich man does there in Jesus' parable, he seems wise from an earthly point of mm. view. You know, I mean, you made a lot of money <laughs> this year, you got to do something with it, and you want to use it to your enjoyment. That seems like wisdom, but the Lord very clearly calls it foolishness here. And, the, and your recognition, I think, is, is helpful, because on the, on the surface, it's like, well, what's, what's this guy's problem? It's, it's maybe, if I can call it this, he doesn't maybe look like an atheist, but he's functionally an atheist. Mm -hmm. So perhaps if you asked him, is there a God, he might have said yes. I mean, this is kind of going farther than the text actually reveals, but maybe he would have said yes to there is a God. But he's living as if there is no God when it comes to his possessions in particular, which then... I mean, I think this is where the connection to Psalm 14 is helpful, because you see the theological reality behind this man's reactions. He is foolish because he is living as if there is no God. And I think that's a—that can become a pretty helpful diagnostic to all of us, I think, when we look at our lives, our actions. Am I living as if there is a God or not? And if so, then I can tell if I'm being wise or foolish. Go ahead. And I love the way you say that, because as Psalm 14, you know, starts, notice that the fool says in his heart, uh, right. there is no God. You know, that's that's yeah. the way the psalmist starts. So so picturing this fool in our mind from Psalm 14, uh, he may not be explicitly out loud saying, oh, there's there's no God. You know, the, the explicit atheist um, yet uh, the, the rest of verse one there. Um, they are corrupt. Uh, they do ab abominable deeds. Uh, there is none who does good. Again, the behavior, the actions that flow from the heart, um, at least in this description of Psalm 14, verse 1, um, is what we would describe accurately as, as an atheistic way of, of living and being, ultimately flowing from the, from the heart. Yeah, I really appreciate what you said there about the—he uh, says it in his heart. So he may be saying something with his lips— but his heart is far from, from the Lord, to use the, the language of Isaiah that Jesus picks up in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. There is no God. And to see this as the, the foundation of—and, of course, it's defining folly here, not wisdom. 
but then it does cast the brighter light on the definition of wisdom that we do have in the scriptures, most memorably in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think, again, for us as Christians, especially in a day and age where Christians do get mocked more often for what we would call wisdom, to see this real definition of what wisdom is and what folly is is very helpful. That even as the world may mock Christian truth, which is the truth, as foolishness, we know that actually the faith in the Lord that we have, that is true wisdom, and folly is the opposite, despite what the world may tell us. Yeah, and and what what that brings to my mind is really then um, uh, what is our relationship to the Lord, and are we leaning on His Word, His wisdom, uh, placing our trust in Him uh, to to then let our actions and behaviors, be it in the context of Psalm 14 or in the context of the parable of the rich man, you know, uh, are are what we doing flowing from that uh, or not? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think a verse like this also gives us strength and courage to address what we see in the world for what it truly is. This really does cast a light on what is wisdom and what is foolishness. And just because the world may call something wisdom, the real standard is what does the Lord say about this? I, I think that that hopefully will strengthen us as Christians to, to go ahead and, and say what true foolishness is and what true wisdom is. And not that, you know, not that we would do it mean-spirited, but that we would honestly say when the world speaks things that go against God and his word, we can honestly and directly say that's, that's foolishness. And I think a verse like this strengthens us for that kind of confession. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, this is where we do start to see relationship to the rest of, of this section. As you said, we're going to think about verses one through three together. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So how does this relate to the matter of fools who are set, telling themselves in their heart, there's no God? Um, again, it, it, uh, it, it, where the heart lies, then, you know, then the, the actions flow from it. Um, uh, uh, what we see from the fool or, or fools sort of as a category, then, um, as a collective group, um, uh, corrupt deeds, abominable deeds, um, ultimately, ultimately what we would, you know, call bad evil. Um, uh, there is none who does good, um, we're going to see as we look at this section, verses two through three, kind of a, a, a twist, so to speak, of the psalmist or, or maybe an expansion. Um, but this is just looking at verse one and pondering it. This is where it takes me, at least. And, and I think many of us is ah, that that group over there, the, the foolish group. Um, certainly, I see these are the, the bad things that they do. Mm. Yeah. I and mean, we you know, you see this in the Psalms regularly. You have the wicked and you have the righteous. There are these two ways, the way of the Lord, the way of evil. And that's certainly present here. But as you said, it, within this psalm, we want to be careful 
especially as to which group we're going to place ourselves in and and mm. really the why we place ourselves in one group or another and that's where and I, I think we'll we'll get we'll get there for sure the way saint paul picks up this psalm in the book of romans is instructive for us when we start to consider well am i wise or am i foolish we're going to need to listen to how saint paul is going to use these words in romans 3 so that we make sure we if we're going to say we're wise then we we need to know why that is and not for the wrong reasons so so yeah you're right there is a, almost a, a they and us here which is not strange but we want to be careful so that we understand why we're actually part of the wise when we get to the end of the psalm yeah yeah i mean you, it, as you noted the the wicked and the righteous and there's a number of other contrasts that we could add add to that um, I think you guys just are going to be looking at Psalm 1. And, and so, you know, again, that, that contrast is highlighted there, uh, the wicked and the righteous. Um, so it's, a, it's an accurate uh, a categorical description for us to, to, you know, ponder and even to maybe resonate with. Um, uh, yet, as we go from verse 1 to verse 2 and then to verse 3 here in Psalm 14, um, what we might first be thinking um, or, or leaning toward from verse one, the fool over there. And certainly that's not me would probably be most of our inclination. Um, sort of this human perspective, especially looking at the deeds, the, the actions, um, verse two switches us to, a, a a different perspective rather than a human perspective. Um, you know, now we bring in the Lord, um, uh, God's name, uh, uh personally Yahweh, um, he looks down and, and, and it, I think, intentionally changes uh, our perspective, or at least, at least starts to. Yeah, okay, so, so talk about how this changes perspective then. The, again, verse 1, this is the psalmist speaking, David here, saying about the fool and they being corrupt. And now in verse 2, he's adding how does—I mean, does David's perspective in verse 1— match up with God's perspective in verse 2? I think the answer is is yes, but, but talk about how that influences things, that now we're hearing about what the Lord is looking down and seeing there in verse 2. Yeah, um, uh, so especially the description of, of the Lord Yahweh looking down from heaven on the children of man, um, that starts to broaden our, our perspective, you know, kind of opening up this... Um, uh, who who is being talked about in verse one, um, especially the second half um, of verse one, um, when when it says they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. Again, our inclination is to think the fool that was that was being introduced at the beginning, but when when we hear in verse two, the Lord's looking down from heaven and looking at the children of man, all people, um, uh, is where we start to then see God's perspective here. Um, to see if there are any who understand, um, or even a, another way of translating that. Apparently, the ESV has this footnote um, to see if there are any who act wisely. Mm. Um, uh, so we have that contrast uh, brought to to uh, the forefront a little bit. Again, that fool wise contrast um, to see if there are any who understand or act wisely. Um, any implied then who seek after God. Um, he the 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 category is being broadened. It's being opened up. Um, again, who's being described here? Is it just the fool or, oh, wait, is the psalmist describing, is David describing something more than that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, a good catch that now we've got 
of, of heaven, this heavenly perspective, the Lord is looking not just upon those who are labeled fools, but he's looking upon all people here. And I do think there's there's quite the, just thinking through the imagery, you've got the Lord in heaven looking down on the children of man. The, I think that that's a pretty big contrast, the creator and then his creatures. And so that that contrast, mm. I think, is important, especially f- given what the fool has said previously. One of these little children of men here on earth, he's thinking, oh, there's no God. Mm. Now we're seeing actually the real perspective where the Lord, who is the creator, he's looking down to see what's going on. I think there's maybe a bit of irony there. That, that imagery really, I think, highlights just how foolish the attitude of verse 1 is. And it also, as you pointed out, it also begins to reveal to us what wisdom is going to look like. So to see if there are any who understand, or as you said, could also be translated, that act wisely. We've talked about in other episodes that in Hebrew poetry, you have this this use of parallelism, where Mm. one line will be used to explain or expand upon another. I think that's what's going on here at the end of verse 2. What does it mean to be one of those who understands or who acts wisely? It means to seek after God rather than to not to deny him. Instead, to seek after him is is wisdom. So, that, yeah, I think verse 2 is really opening up and expanding what we saw in verse 1 so that we can apply it to ourselves and not just those guys over there. Yeah, yeah, and and I love that the, the irony that you brought forth there. Um, uh, again, the, the eyes or, so to speak, this perspective of the fool— um, who thinks there isn't a God. And then, you know, the very next verse is, ah, th- this God that does exist, <laughs> you know, the one who, who not only exists, but actually created all things. Um, he's looking down from his perspective um, uh, on us. And, and, and as you said, then, you know, our, where does our, our wisdom ultimately come from, from the Lord, uh, uh, from the one who created all things. Um, and so, Hopefully, ideally, uh, we are we are seeking after God. Um, not that that's initiated by us. You know, we could get into all that, but but again, this idea of of um, I, I'm reminded of you know uh, uh, my ways are not your ways, uh, my thoughts yeah. are not your thoughts, and so um, h- how can we, especially as Christians in, in the Christian life, um, seek to um, seek God, His wisdom, His knowledge, His ways. Yeah, that's right, and that's what he he calls upon people to do in that very context of Isaiah 55, as you mentioned, is to seek after him, because he is near, and he he desires to be found, which is is certainly good Mm. news. To keep in mind, as we look at Psalm 14, we're going to keep examining it on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Tim Eden this morning about Psalm 14. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 5th. We're studying Psalm 14 with Pastor Tim Eden. He serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. Pastor Eden, prior to the break, we were talking about the way this psalm really opens up. In verse 2, we've seen the perspective of the fool. Now we've seen the perspective of the Lord, and we've learned he's looking down on the children of man. So he's looking at all people to see if there are any who understand and seek after God. How does verse 3 continue to open up this picture and then take us from Psalm 14 into the way that St. Paul uses these words in Romans chapter 3? Yeah, so as you said there, you know, the it is opening up um, uh, in a sense, uh, the the perspective, the possibility of who who's being included here in this description of corrupt deeds, abominable deeds. Um, uh, and, and if there's any doubt... Um, after verse two, uh, verse three, then very, uh, uh, oh man, in, in a difficult way, I think, um, clarifies that, uh, verse three, they have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. We have that phrase repeated, um, not even one. Um, and so now the, they in, in verse three, it has to be the, the, the pronoun has to be a reference to the children of man. You know, it's not just the fool category, but really all people, wait, all have turned aside together. They have become corrupt. And, and uh, where am I in that? <laughs> okay. So, right. So, I mean, the, they suddenly now is including all the children of man. They're the ones who've turned aside. They're the ones that have become corrupt and none of them does good. And again, you know, you notice that it's the same as in verse one, but then he adds not even one just to cement what he's said. Now, how does St. Paul pick this up in Romans three? And how does that help us to understand what's going on here in Psalm 14? Yeah, in, in Romans chapter three, um, Paul has been, um, we see this psalm quoted um, in verses 11 and 12 um, of Romans three. And, and at this point in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, um, he has been spending quite a bit of time, actually, the second half of chapter one, all of chapter two, um, uh, speaking to Romans and to, to people everywhere of um, the lack of righteousness, the sin in people's lives, um, uh, idolatry, um, as well as, you know, a whole host of other um, uh, sins that we, that we commit. Um, but he's, he's sort of coming to this point then uh, in, in the first third of, of Romans chapter 3 of saying, all are under sin. Um, uh, that's the language he uses in, in verse 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Um, and then in verse 10, he just starts quoting the Old Testament. Uh, I mean, it's almost like rapid fire. Um, uh, and part of one of these quotes is, is from this very psalm. Uh, uh, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Um, verse 11 then is very clear from Psalm 14. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And, and so what we might be, if we were just reading Psalm 14, pondering and and realizing as we move from verse one to verse three, Paul makes explicitly clear for us as well as, as he is quoting this, this same Psalm. Uh, the purpose, what's being described here is every single human being on the earth 
is under sin, um, uh, has, has fallen into sin, um, and does not do, do good as we think we do, um, but actually all have, have turned away from God. Mm. So if I can then to use the point St. Paul is going to make with this, part of what we want to realize as we're looking at this in Psalm 14 is that what we are reading here is not going to become a cause for boasting in ourselves. The wrong way to look mm. at the, the they, the fool, and us, the righteous, because that is going to come up, and we don't want to lose sight of that. But the mm-hmm. wrong way to look at this would be to see some sort of cause for boasting in us. David here is reminding us, and St. Paul makes it very explicit when he picks it up in Romans 3, that on our own, apart from Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and the means of grace, we are all these fools who can't seek after God, who can't seek after God, who won't seek after God, who would live as if he doesn't exist and would therefore do corrupt things. That's who we are on our own, apart from Christ. And so as we consider what it means for us to be a part of the people of God, there's no place for pride. That's the way I think Paul's going to take it in Romans 3, and I think it's helpful helpful for us to see that as we're reading Psalm 14. Yeah, it's really helpful when, at least for me, when portions of the Old Testament are quoted in the New Testament because um, it actually helps us um, interpret uh, rightly those scriptures in the Old Testament if if there's any uncertainty or ambiguity for us. And so just as you've laid out very well, you know, our, to use the language that Paul's emphasizing in Romans 3 so much, our righteousness, even though that's not as prominent in Psalm 14, our righteousness is not in ourselves. Um, And if we look at ourselves, um, even as we might feel like we're more righteous than someone else in a different group, um, really we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same place. Uh, we all fall short, uh, again, then to use the language that Paul moves into, because it's just a few verses later that he makes the wonderful switch um, to the righteousness of God manifested apart from the law, um, um, manifested in Christ Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, keeping those thoughts from Paul in Romans 3 in mind will help us as we go forward in this psalm, because the word righteous does show up as describing the people— of God. And so to know how Paul has defined righteousness, making use of these words from Psalm 14, I think will help us to understand what it means that there are those who are righteous, say in verse 5. Mm-hmm. So so with that in mind, let's let's move into the next section. Verses 4 through 6 you suggested go well together, and I think rightly so. I'm going to go ahead and reread it just to have it back in our minds. This is four, Psalm 14, 4 mm-hmm. to 6. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So that's, again, Psalm 14, verses 4 to 6. Now, here's a question that I had, Pastor Eden, as I was reading this, and I'm not sure that I know the answer but within the Psalms, one of the things that it's helpful to think about is who is speaking to whom. And sometimes that changes within uh, the Psalm itself. And, and I, I kind of wonder here, I don't know the answer, I wonder if perhaps we're hearing words from the Lord. And the reason I, I wonder that is because in verse 2, he was the one that was looking down on the children of men, 
he's seen that together they are corrupt. There's none who have who are doing good, and I I wonder, especially with you know who eat up my people. That that pronoun my is part of the reason I'm wondering mm-hmm. this. Certainly, it could be David, and and these are his people, the people of God who are being persecuted. But I, I wonder if we could be hearing the words of the Lord. I I don't know the answer to that. The editors of the ESV don't seem to take it that way, and that's fine. They that very well could be right. But I, I don't know. I was just I was wondering that. I'm curious if you have any thoughts. Yeah, I, I think it is a good question, and it's something for us to consider anytime we're reading the Psalms. This sudden switch of of, of voice of who's speaking, um, and I think as you're saying. In this case, in verse four, um, uh, there there's the possibility of a switch, um, and, and even I guess there's a the the one switch or change that I think is important for us to note is that in these verses that follow, now the they um, has been reclarified as evildoers, um, yes. and so uh, there is sort of a different speaker in a sense. Um, uh, because now it is speaking to these two groups. Uh, again, Psalm 1 is actually really helpful in the background here um, of, of wicked and righteous, um, uh, evildoers and, and, and those who do good. Um, so are these words in verse 4, you know, still David's words, kind of looking from a different, uh, a reframed perspective now? Um, or are they the words of, of God himself? I, I think you're right. You can make an argument for either. Um, I don't know if we have a clear answer, uh, but it's it's sure. really helpful for us to keep in mind in general. Sure, and and what you what you said is very helpful because this is you know we've been saying that in the first three verses we're we are seeing how all people are corrupt and on their own they have no knowledge of God, but now in verses four through six, whether we're hearing it from the perspective of David or from the perspective of the Lord, there are very clearly these two groups. There mm-hmm. are the evildoers. And there are, well, and, and maybe if we can just use the terms of the psalm itself to try to, to get a handle on this, the evildoers are the ones who have no knowledge. They're the ones who are eating up the people of the Lord as they eat bread. They are the ones who are trying to shame the plans of the poor. And I think they're the ones in great terror in verse 5, too. Whereas, on the other hand, the righteous are labeled my people, and again, that could be David's people, or I possibly the Lord's people. Mm-hmm. They're labeled those who are calling upon the Lord. They're labeled the generation of the righteous, and they're labeled, well, the poor, I think, in verse 6. Those would be th- that group, and they're the ones who have the Lord as, as a refuge. There you have these two groups. And this is where, again, I think Paul's use of this chapter in Romans 3 is helpful. How do you get into the, the right side? <laughs> well... <laughs> It's through the righteousness of Christ, which is is described in different words in, in this psalm, but that it's the same thing that's being described, I think. Yeah, I, I think you set up the the two groups in the psalm in, in verses four through six very well, um, uh, and then this will flow into verse seven for us when we get there. But I think again, using the language that's provided for us in the psalms, verses uh, Psalm fourteen four through six, um, and you highlighted every single piece of of those two groups. This can feel paradoxical for us because just a second ago we were talking about how we're all in the same boat, um, yet there is a distinction then uh, when it comes to these two groups here in Psalm 14 and, again, looking at Paul, going forward in in uh, Paul's uh, letter to the Romans. Um, 
so we see uh, uh, the contrast now um, between these two groups, evildoers and righteous, um, plus all the other descriptions you added. Um, and, and it seems to be um, not just two groups that are kind of separate, but um, there's here in these verses, at least, there's the group of evildoers actually um, impacting the group of the righteous, um, uh, you know, eating up my people, uh, obviously very metaphorical, but some sort of uh, description of harm, um, uh, a hurt of some kind, um, uh, the, uh, and, and then also in verse six, you know, uh, shame the plans of the poor. Um, what exactly is meant there? I wrestle with a little bit, but still um, that description of poor um, and, and the language of shame, some sort of uh, uh, oppression uh, might be the right word. Um, uh, there might be better words for it as well. Yeah, and I think, I mean, just to, if we can try to tie these two sections together, there maybe is a little bit of, of a backstory that we can provide, or at least is the way I'm imagining this narrative working. So in verses 1 through 3 comes the condemnation, just like Paul lays it out in the first chapters of Romans. Everyone is corrupt. Well, what do you do with that? The mm -hmm. way of the fool is to deny God and to say, you're not real in whatever way that, that comes. The way of wisdom is instead to call upon the Lord, to realize that the one who has looked upon you and seen that you're sinful, he's also the one who has saved you. And that's, mm. the, that's the real wisdom of... And, and that, I think, I mean, it fits into verse 4, so the, those who are calling upon the Lord, I think it fits into verse 5, they are righteous, not because of their own, but because of the righteousness given them through Christ. Again, that's the way Paul describes it. And, and they are the ones who found refuge in the Lord. And that's, that's kind of the, the backstory, I guess, or the transition between verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6 that maybe isn't spelled out explicitly in the psalm, but that's the way that I see it working is once you've heard the proclamation of the first three verses, what responses are you going to give? Are you going to deny God and run away from Him, or will you run to Him and find Him as your Savior? That, that's kind of the way that I put these two things together. And I love the the picture you use there at the end, because I think this is, um, some of that picture is played out in these verses. This idea of close to God or far from God, um, uh, apart from Him or with Him, uh, um, again, in one sense, we all find ourselves apart from him, um, but verses 4, 5, and 6 then start to describe for the, the, those who are called righteous um, a different picture. Um, again, someone that you can call upon, someone that you have that uh, relationship with. Um, uh, verse 5, God is with the generation of the righteous. Oh, yeah. There's some presence there. And I think the refuge language adds to that as well. He, he's a, he's a, a protection, a, a place of um, a stronghold. You know, the, some of those kinds of um, images come to my mind as well, um, based upon the language here in, in Psalm 14. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. The other thing I think that's worth pointing out, and you've mentioned it already, is the way that there starts to be this conflict between these two groups, which we've now rightly understood why they are in each camp. And you see how those who are fools, who are not calling upon the Lord, they now begin to turn and persecute the righteous. And this is, I think, a very basic thing when it comes to Christianity, but it's, it's worth seeing. 
that where your faith is, there go your actions. So when you have no love for God, you are not going to have love for the neighbor, and that especially is going to be borne away, borne out in the way that you treat the people of God. No love for God means no love for his people, and that is very much the way that the fools start behaving here in verses 4 to 6. It starts with their faith, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you start to see the fruits, especially in these verses. Yep. Yep, and on the on the flip side of that, you're you're absolutely right on the on the evildoer side of that. On the flip side of that, of the righteous, um, uh, the same then goes for our faith and um, what we are able to to do or not do. In a sense, um, uh, there's no description of of the righteous doing anything about this conflict, um, but instead relying upon upon the Lord. Um, yeah. He is. Uh, the refuge. Um, he is our place of, of protection. Um, uh, and really, prosperity has a bad idea behind it there. But, you know, but the one who, who protects and provides, maybe that's a better word for it than um, for what we need. Right. And I, I think the fruit then of the righteous is borne out in the prayer that does come in verse 7, which, as we as said, does kind of stand here as the capstone and the conclusion of this. Here's the prayer. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Help us into this verse. Uh, well, as we've pictured or, or, or laid out that picture for us, there is this conflict um, uh, difficulty that the righteous are dealing with, the persecution, um, uh, the the maybe oppression, again, whatever language we want to use there. And so... What are the the righteous? What are the faithful looking for? Salvation. Um, uh, God, uh, save us from this. Um, first, I, I think it's appropriate for, appropriate for in the in the progression of this psalm for us to think in a somewhat temporal sense here um, of these challenges that we deal with from the evildoers. You know, if we're being eat up eaten up by people around us, um, we're certainly going to look to God and ask him for salvation from that. Uh, we may or may not receive that here in this time, in the in the temporal sense. Um, and this is then where it also broadens, the, the idea of salvation very much broadens, but it's always salvation not from ourselves, because then we'd be turning back into that other group um, uh, where, where we can't find any any righteousness or any goodness, but rather salvation from the Lord. Um, the middle of verse seven uh, uh, makes it clear if there's if there's any uncertainty in the first part of verse seven where we don't know uh, the the actor you know the one who brings the salvation uh, this is where that parallelism uh, plays in the the second line of verse seven then makes it clear oh who is it that brings this it's Yahweh yeah yeah that's right so where where is hope going to be found for the people of God but in God Himself. And so the psalmist David here prays for that, that salvation would come out of Zion. And it, it's, I think, noteworthy that it does come from a, a particular place. The Lord brings the help from where he's dwelling, and so the people of God look to the place where he dwells for help from Zion. Hmm. Yeah, um, uh, the, the, that place of Zion, um, you know, the, the reference to that mount, uh, uh, sometimes the city of Jerusalem, sometimes a little bit broader than that, but still the, the place that God promised to be, 
uh, made himself known to be the place that you could find him uh, and therefore the the help, the salvation, uh, the refuge that, that he brings along with that. Mm, yeah, and I think, I mean, within these verses is where you start to see very clearly a connection to Jesus. The, the Hebrew, well, remember in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel comes to Joseph and tells him that he needs to name Mary's son Jesus, the reason given is because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means the Lord, Yahweh, saves. And that's precisely what's being prayed for here in verse 7. I, I know, I mean, historically, mm-hmm. David is looking for help for salvation, but I, I think it's fair for us to think about this. Oh, that Jesus would come. And that's <laughs> precisely what, what God did. He is our salvation. And I think this is a, a very clear reference within Psalm 14 to that hope of the people of God. Yeah, and I think this is the this is the easiest part, so to speak, then, of this psalm for us to pray with. Uh, again, we were talking about how, you know, some psalms lend themselves to that more than others. This one, we've we've almost been being, we've been taught by this psalm a lot, but verse 7 is is very easy for us to say, you know, ah, Lord, bring bring me salvation. And again, I, th- I think it's appropriate for that to, to be temporal in a sense, um, but uh, ultimately the answer to those prayers for salvation, be them temporal or eternal, are, are going to be found in Christ. And like you're saying, this has to point to Christ for us. Um, just as for David, it certainly would have pointed to the, the Messiah, the, the promised one to come. Um, ultimately, uh, even if David in this instance or another you know, of his Psalms where he's going to, you know, he's fearing losing his life uh, or whatever else he's dealing with, he knows that Ultimately, salvation will come from the Lord, um, even if that means uh, a time long after my my physical life on earth. Mm. Yeah, and, and notice the way that that brings joy. You know, I mean, to think about the the mm-hmm. where this psalm has started mm-hmm. with seeing the foolishness and recognizing that I don't do good, throwing myself upon the Lord in His mercy is what brings me joy because I know that He is where salvation, He is the source of salvation, no matter what. And, and certainly there's joy when he restores the fortunes, but there's also joy even now in the midst of the, the waiting for the for that joy to be... that Yeah, there's joy now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is just to make it explicitly clear for us, you know, when we see Israel here, when we see um, uh, in the final line, Jacob and Israel referenced, um, you know, is this just a, a literal people of Jacob, the literal people of Israel? Um uh, no, this is where the psalm really applies to the people of God. Um, uh, who is being referenced here? The people of God in David's day, in the writing of this psalm, but the people of God more broadly. And so, yes, you and I can rejoice here and now, um, even as we will rejoice uh, maybe in a greater sense, a fuller sense, um, when the fullness of God's salvation comes in Christ's return. Right, and just to, to go to Paul in Romans again, I mean, Paul Paul tells us who Israel is. It is the Israel of faith, <laughs> those who, who seek after the Lord and who know his name in Jesus Christ. That is the Israel of God, and so we are the Israel of God in the church right now. We've got about two minutes here, Pastor Eden. Reflecting on Psalm 14, how do we use it? I mean, you've talked about praying. How do we pray from Psalm 14? How do we use it as Christians in our lives today? 
Um, I think uh, any time that we can can come across this psalm again, whether it be through daily reading or or some other place that we come across it, um, even if it doesn't have that that I and me language in it, um, uh, uh, I've found um, as I'm trying to dig into this a little bit more myself, speaking the the words of the psalm um, even out loud if you can um, helps at least for Psalm 14 helps us helps remind ourselves really God's word remind us of our of our first place because of our sin um so that we don't become foolish to the extent of saying ah there's no god i have what i need i i, I can take care of myself um uh, this psalm helps us remind us of our of our our sinfulness and our 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 place apart from god yet then also the reminder of uh, what god does for us when we are in him and with him um, ultimately through Christ. And so this can still be a prayer of ours, even if it doesn't have that personal language, um, still the wonderful reminders of refuge and salvation in him, Yahweh. Pastor Tim Eden serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 14. Pastor Eden, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. I always enjoy it. There is none who does good, says David, and St. Paul echoes him. We have not done good apart from Christ. On our own, we are separated from God. What is the response? The Holy Spirit has worked faith in our hearts, not foolishness, not the foolishness that denies God and who he is, but rather true wisdom that runs to him, knowing that he is our beloved Father, he is our refuge, for he has given us salvation from Zion. He has given us Jesus, who has died, risen, ascended, and will come again, our only Savior." I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 14, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.